0: Hey guys, Tucker here, co host of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Before we get into this week's show, I wanted to let you know that we're currently looking for more projects. So, for any of you guys that listen to the show that may be an agent or otherwise that have a property that you're looking to sell, we'd love to hear from you. Obviously, we're looking to purchase properties that are maybe not best suited for the retail market or maybe they need to be redeveloped. So, we do renovations and we do new construction so we could buy an existing home that maybe it smells like cigarette smoke. Maybe it hasn't been updated in decades. Maybe it's got some functional functional issues, problems like that, or maybe it's just in an area that is best suited to take the house down, partition the lot, maybe build a couple new homes, or just build one new home in its place, and anything in between. So, if you guys out there in listenland have anything that would be best suited selling to a development company like ours, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to our website, which is ttmdevelopmentcompany.com, and when you go there, there's a Contact Us tab. Click on that, and you can send us a message, and we'll get back to you shortly thereafter. We'd love to hear from any of you guys out there that have a property like this, and hopefully, we. We can do a deal together. This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Maryhugh from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody out there listening, man, welcome back to our, I believe it's our first episode of 2020. We're back. I'm here with my co host, Mr. Steve Nassar, and we have our good friend of the show. Well, welcome, Steve, and then we'll <laughs> our good friend of the show.
1: <laughs> hey, guys. Hi, Hi, Joe. Happy 2020. Happy new decade. You know, I have
0: to give myself a pat on the back before we get into it, uh, Steve. I think uh, you and I are having lunch next week with the potentially new mayor of Lake Oswego, um, and we had no idea that he was going to be potentially running when we had him on the show. So I guess that worked out pretty well for us, playing a little uh, political chess, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was—I mean, kudos to him. He was a great guy. I—he, I, it was—you know—I don't have a ton of experience with politicians, you know, one-on-one and, and hearing the, the wise behind things, but man, he had good reasons for some of the stuff that, and that, that we just are cringing about and going, why are they doing this? And, and, and it all made sense. And he had a, he was, he just had a good common sense explanation. And I think he'd be a great mayor for this wonderful little town. I think so, too. So anyway, we'll see
0: if we can get him back on the show after uh, maybe he goes through this thing called an election. And, uh, you know, maybe he's still willing to uh, chat with us. We'll see. But uh,
1: yeah, we'll have to find out all the details about when that's out and and see what we can do to help him out. For sure. But we need good people like that. Yes. Yeah. Although, did you see Sam Adams might be making a comeback? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, the good news is his, his boyfriend's now like what? probably 30 so he's he's, he's legit <laughs> I think he's in the clear yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll leave it at that anyway <laughs> let's uh, let's get to our topics this week uh we've got joe back on we're doing some best of masters we've got a whole bunch of topics um we'll kind of start at the
1: top uh what one do you want to roll with first well let's start with the most recent one um it's a concealed carry one um it's it it just got posted in the last couple of days. Here it is. <clears throat> so it just got posted. It's got twenty six comments. I think it could it has the potential to be kind of a hot topic. I mean, for crying out loud, I think today in Virginia there's like some huge rally at the Capitol. I was I was seeing that on the news this morning, where they're um you know they're fighting for gun rights and so on and so forth. So there's always a potential for um for controversy with this subject. But basically, I did read the article. And um, it seems very bonafide. I mean, this is a KGW article. What I read was this: realtor somewhere in Colorado was at an open house. She was setting up. Some guy comes in. He's asking some pretty legit questions. He um, about financing and you know what what it takes to get um, a loan. He then asks to see the upstairs. They go up into the master bedroom. He pulls out. Um, I think rope and bear spray and a knife or something, um, and then says asks her to get in the closet, and um, she pulls out a gun, I, I, I'm, and I'm just laughing because I mean that to me seems a little like it's like you said up before we got on the air. Don't bring bear spray to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, wait. He, like, he he didn't back down right away. He sprays her, and so she's kind of blinded. She fires the gun in his direction. And then he runs, and he got caught. And um, so I think this is – and she's being very vocal that if I didn't have a firearm, I wouldn't be here to talk to you. So there's a lot of people here on Masters asking about concealed carry permits and classes. seems to be a lot of traction in that direction. Um, Joe, what's your thoughts?
2: Well, so – I have a a whole bunch of guns, I have my whole life, I have my concealed carry permit, and I don't make a point to carry it all the time, but I always carry it when I go hiking because of cougars and bears and stuff, um, which they're seeing a lot more of uh, out by my cabin. And if I'm going to some remote area where men play banjos and trees and... (laughs) Bad cell reception and everything else. Um, I just might uh bring it with me.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've come- taken it, but let's let's keep it to the to work. Have you ever taken it with you to an appointment beyond your car? Uh, question, uh, no, question.
2: I, I never have. Um, I, I've never felt so insecure with surroundings that I felt I needed to to bring it with me, but uh, if I had that feeling, I would definitely bring it with me. I mean, you you have two options. You could, you have an attacker on, you know, with two legs or four legs, whatever it may be coming at you. You could either put a couple of rounds in it, or you could throw your like water bottle at it. And I, I definitely (laughs) think (laughs) putting a couple of rounds in it is a lot more effective. And I know there's people out there that are anti-gun and, and, you know, God love them. You don't have to carry. I will say if you do carry and you do use it for defense, know how to use the damn thing. (laughs) Get appropriate training or you'll hurt yourself or somebody else inadvertently. So, uh, but I'm for it. I'm, I'm all for safety. And if that helps people be safe, then by all means do it. How about you tucker do you, well, you have- i'm
0: surprised joe doesn't carry it around town because i do know there's quite a few cougar sightings especially in some bars around lo so you know, that's-
2: <laughs> the tavern on cruise
0: yeah <laughs> you gotta protect yourself you know um i i'm uh you know i i've always i grew up with guns you know i have a lot as well um but I don't necessarily, well, I'll I'll tell you this. We go and look at a lot of shady stuff and we're talking like the nasty underbelly of society that most realtors don't ever want to stick their foot in, you know, in terms of the front door and walking in and seeing how people live and seeing just the drug problems, the, you know, should I call child services, uh, just how people live right on that kind of underside of humanity. And so, you know, we carry to a lot of those types of appointments just because we don't know what we're walking into and it gets a little weird sometimes but on the retail side you know it's pretty safe for the most part although if I was a female and I was hosting open houses by myself um, you know at a minimum I would probably want to have some mace there because you just don't know I mean I don't know weirdos come in and do weird stuff right I don't know if I would want to like Escort somebody upstairs by myself to a room and, you know, not stay in the main floor where, you know, doors are open and people can come and go. But I can't, I wouldn't blame them for, you know, wanting some extra protection there. But again, I'm a guy. Joe's a guy. You're a guy. You know, we think that we're, you know, nobody's really going to come into an open house and want to do weird stuff to us most of the time, you know. And if they did, you know, we've got a couple of fifths and we can kind of defend ourselves, you know, worst case. But, I think that if it uh, if it makes you feel safe then uh, I think you should but as Joe said you definitely should have your concealed carry permit and you should definitely know what the hell you're doing because there's nothing worse than somebody carrying a, a firearm that has no idea how to use it and isn't comfortable carrying it
1: yeah yeah um, no and I, and I and by the way I, I know a lot of age, a lot of, of gals in the business females in the business that do carry um, bear spray or mace and I think that's great um, I would just say <clears throat> I think I'm with you you guys I mean if if I've never, I've never had or needed felt the need to have anything like this, um, in business. Um, I, I get it if, if, I mean, this story's cool. I mean, I guess a couple questions I had to myself was, so did she have it in her purse, which I think women usually have purses. And I think that makes sense with a guy. I would, as a guy, as a guy, I mean, I don't know how, how much you could, you could conceal that. And would you suddenly scare off buyers who know you're packing heat? Um, with a female, if you have a, if you have a decent sized purse, I get, you could have that. So I'm assuming maybe she had in her purse and she took the purse upstairs with her, or maybe she did have it as a side piece, um, sidearm and, and she had, I don't know. But for every story that has a wonderful ending like this, I have to say there are some out there where, you know, a kid gets a hold of it. Some they shoot the wrong person. They're in the news. Then they're in big trouble. So just be careful. Just be careful. I I get this is a this is a pretty good positive message here, but there are some unpositive ones. So okay, let's move on from this one. I think we uh, addressed it well. I'm and I'm glad. I think the the underlying message. I'm glad she was safe after all that. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about new MLS numbers. So this was posted by Marissa Lafada on January 4th, which is very applicable. In fact, in all of our conversations about best and masters over the years, we've never done this one because um, it's kind of a timing thing. It's, it only really comes into play in the last couple of weeks. So it's talking about just changing the MLS number. Now this person kind of framed it like it was some kind of sleazy or um, shady thing to do, which got a lot of attention. I'm seeing a lot of agents cancel the listings in RMLS, relist with a new ML number, and then market the listing as new. Most of the time, not even doing a price reduction, new staging or new photos. I used to see this here and there, but now the listings are sitting longer. I see it all the time. Buyers are really frustrated by it. Not only is it annoying, but it appears dishonest and sets the tone that agents have no problem lying about a listing or the history. She goes on a little bit further, but I think we get the gist. I think her last question is, um, any insights would be appreciated, um, Tucker. What do you think on this one? Well, I've seen
0: it a lot, um, and I've seen it for probably the reasons that Marissa doesn't like it. Because um, in the world of house flipping and building and you know speculative real estate, let's call it, um, you know, you put a, a project to market, and if it doesn't sell well, uh, you know, you get those days on market rack you know going up and up and up and then you know you don't necessarily want to do a price reduction maybe you're coming in around the holidays you know you don't sell it as quickly as you think and so then people will pull it off the market for a day and then they'll put it back and it has zero history so when you go to look at it you know I, for me I kind of scan I use Redfin a lot just cuz obviously I'm not an agent and uh, it's a good way for me to kind of have an overhead view and look and see what's on the market what's pending what's sold all at the same time and I'll see something disappear and then I'll see it pop back up and I'm like oh it's back on and I'll be like, well, did they fire their agent? Did they get a new agent? You know, what happened? And then I'll click on it and I'll look at the list history just to see if maybe it went pending, went back on. And obviously it's not. And it's just a whole new listing. And I think it's often used as a strategy to kind of mask the fact that maybe it didn't sell in the first month or two. um, And you want it to look new. But at the end of the day, I don't know who you're fooling. So I, I get why people do it. But for those buyers that are in the market or that have been looking or those agents that have been looking, I kind of think they see through it anyway, or they've seen the property before. So I don't know. I don't think it really matters all that much. But what do you guys think?
2: It it doesn't matter that much anymore. I mean, we want the integrity of RMLS to, to stay intact. And you don't want to see a lot of canceling listing and then re-entering it, although it is pretty effective. Um, So the reason all of this came about, before MLS used to have ascending MLS numbers. So if you had a number like in 2017 and it was 1,700,000, well, you'd know that when they got to 1,704,000, that 4,000 new listings came on the market since that one. So if you're looking at a piece of paper and you see that the ML number is 17,000, but today's ML numbers are 4,000, you can kind of gauge how long it's been on the market. So now they give you random numbers that just start with the year. 2020 uh, has starts with 20, last year started with 19. And uh, it's it's random. It's not consecutive whatsoever, and they sort of fixed it with the DOM and the CDOM. So DOM is days on the market. CDOM is consecutive days on the market. So if you do a lot of screwing around with it, cancel it and re-enter it, then if you don't have that waiting period of I think it's thirty, 30 days,
1: days, yeah,
2: um, then. It doesn't reset your clock, but it is a new ML number and it does freshen it up. Sometimes a team member puts a different team member's name as listing agent and they rearrange photos and rearrange stuff. I don't I think your job as a listing agent is to get it sold. <clears throat> and not always, if it doesn't sell, is it the listing agent's fault? I mean sometimes the seller says, I want more money than what I can really get. I want more money than what the market will bear. And sometimes it's on the seller. But I would much rather see them refreshing a listing with a new ML number than someone taking it off the market and then going back on the market or the person that reduces it every three days for $100 and then three (laughs) days later they raise it by $100. Or kind of my favorite is the whole – adjective change right data changes spur a new push out to everybody that's a match so if you change it from gorgeous view to fabulous view and you hit save then it says data change and it pushes it all out just because you changed your adjective i think that's a little bit more dishonest and and i wouldn't mind seeing that go away but refreshing an ML number doesn't bother me as much.
1: We need to get Kurt Von Wasmuth on here again, by the way, Tucker, it's been a year. He's due. Um, he's a I'm great, curious what his, what he thinks of this uh, little, yeah, this would be a good report. question for him. Joe, I'm not positive that the, the adjective change sends it out in the searches again. I know the dropping at $5 or a hundred dollars does, and that's a big gripe of a lot of people, but that would be a good question for Kurt. I'm with you on this. Um, I think it's it's very negligible in what it does. The only benefit I see is just that you do get that new number for your MLS. So if right now, um, do clients fully understand that? I don't know. But if you pick up a flyer of a listing right now and it has a one nine in front, you know it's been out there for a while, which right now isn't a big deal. Today's January 20th. Big whoop do. doo It's been listed since 2019. Come July, maybe that's a bigger deal. Right. Um, so uh, So you get that new, new, new number. I, I have done it once or twice in my career, and I kind of did it because I was being... I was in one of those situations where I had a listing that I'd been out there for about six, seven months and, and I, it was kind of a sugar pill for my seller. He was, he was pretty savvy guy and he was asking lots of questions and that somehow he brought this up and, um, he really wanted it. And I, and I, I appeased him by saying, look, you know, I have no problem. We'll unlist it. We'll put a new MLS number. You, your, your flyers will now have a, I think this was a couple years ago. So it'll have a one eight in front instead of a one seven or whatever, So I've done it, but it's not something that I proactively encourage my, my settlers to do or encourage my team to do. Um, I will say there is one other thing that this makes me think of. And since we're on the subject and we're in that time of year where it kind of comes into play, I'm always really careful with like homes that have Christmas decorations in the photos And homes that have snow in the photos, and for that same reason, I feel like they 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 immortalize a time period that moving forward will always be there. Especially if you if it's a home, you know if it's a high priced listing that you're gonna have for a while, you anticipate you're gonna have for a while. Obviously, if it's a four hundred thousand dollar house in a hot area, maybe that's not as big of a deal, but if you're getting ready to list a house in December or if there's like a, some kind of weather event and you think it's a listing that could be out there for a while, you might want to rethink that strategy just because, you know, seven months from now when it's the, the dead heat of summer and it's that's in the photos forever or, and you haven't redone anything about it, it does scream to the, anybody looking at it that, Hey, this has been out there for a while. So
0: I think cool. that the, uh, Snow in the picture is pretty unforgivable. Uh, if you're going to list somebody's house, get that damn picture out of there. There's snow on the ground <laughs> like two days a year here. And yeah. the other thing that drives me crazy, and hopefully you guys are not uh, you know, culprits of this, but when you take a picture of the bathroom, make sure the damn toilet seat's down.
1: <laughs> I hate it when people put it. Yeah, like, me too. Yeah. Hey, so, Tucker, you want to tee up the one you still have in front of you that you that you I found? Do. That was I a good do. one.
0: So I I found one that uh, I thought was a good one because it brought memories (laughs) back to when I first started in this business and I was trying to figure out how in the hell I'm going to pay my mortgage and how I'm going to have enough money in uh, my pocket at the end of the month. And so there's this thing called work-life balance and there's this thing called, you know, when do you pick up calls and when do you talk to people? So there was a a gal named April Keezy I believe is her name, and uh, she said, uh, good morning, fellow agents, or early morning. It's 4.30 a.m. and I've been up since 3.00 which is insane, by the way, but she was up at three, (laughs) stressed out about work again. I love this job, but I do not know how to set boundaries with clients, and I have trouble finding some sense of work-life balance. I'm not good at saying no to clients, and I overwork myself on every transaction. I do not know how to do anything halfway. I give it my all, and I feel burned out most of the time from it. Some clients are respectful of my time and grateful, but some are not, and it's wearing me down. Anyway, you guys get the feeling uh, of what she's trying to convey here. But basically, she's asking, you know, where do you draw the line? Where do you take days off? When do you not pick up calls? Um, How do you manage your life and your business so that you can kind of remain happy doing this, Um, but also feel like you have some type of work-life balance? and I saw this one and I've got my opinions but I'm curious what your guys' takes are because I think everybody's is a little different and you know you guys have been in the business a long time so I'm curious not only how it is now but maybe how it's changed over time um with where you guys are now so maybe Steve t- started off
1: yeah I'll I'll start this one off um first of all I I'm I don't know 100% for sure but I think she's a solo agent in fact I think she says that in here somewhere yeah for those of you who are flying solo so um, that is challenging. Um, I don't know if I've ever said this on the show, but the hardest and longest days I ever worked in this business, I mean, last year in 2019, I think my team did about 60 million, right? Well, the, that's not the hardest and longest days I ever worked. The, the hardest and longest days I ever worked were in my first year when I hadn't quite hired somebody yet. And I was and I was just kind of taken off and, and I, I, you know, I was doing the paperwork. I was doing the showings. I was running the lock boxes out. I was running the flyers out. I was refilling flyer boxes. I'm just on and on and on. I don't need to explain all those, those details to, to you guys or anybody else that's listening. So I, I do feel for solo agents. I, I think this is really a solo agent question because I think when you, when you leverage yourself and you have a team, you're able to, to, to shut down just in a way that, um, that you aren't when you are the only one, the end all be all for the clients. Um, so I was trying to think of this from a vantage point. I was trying to step out of my world and step into their world and go. Okay, you know, what if you are an agent who isn't to the level of having a team or an assistant? Because there was comments on here about having an assistant, which I think there is. There's something to that. If you can get to that level and you can make that stretch, I think your life would be so much better. Um, not to mention, you'd be able to delegate all the things that you don't enjoy doing to somebody else, and and really be left with things you love doing. But That isn't always the case. Sometimes there are, there's agents that that's not where they want to be. That's not who, where they're at in their business. So what I kept coming back to is then find another agent like you find. If, if you're, you know, if you're doing that five to $8 million a year and it's not maybe enough to, to to have a team or an an assistant, and, and maybe you're not shooting for that target, then maybe find another agent of that same level. Who's having these same questions and, and, um, and I'm not saying form a team. I'm just saying maybe you establish some coverage because I think a lot of this comes down to... Um, I don't think this question's about... Well, it is a little bit, but I mean, let's be real. If it's a Sunday afternoon and a client calls you in a panic with a question, if you have to step into the other room and make a phone call, I, I just think that's a little bit a part of the business. And I think, you know the good news in our business i you, i think sometimes we underappreciate this but we're not getting on planes and flying to the east coast and spending a week there i've got plenty of clients that live that kind of life and they're away from their family you know overnight multiple days we we have t- we have demands on us that maybe others have in different ways but w- the trade off is i think we have to be a little bit accessible by phone where i think th- this question kind of gets a little bit, um, more, um, in a, in a, in a challenging way for us is when you actually have to leave your house, when, if you have to go to a showing. So I think if you can partner up with somebody where you go, look, Hey, every other Sunday, I want to take the day off. Can you be available for any last minute showings, last minute errands, whatever the case and do the same for them? Um, I don't know. What do you think, Joe?
2: So it's it's something that everyone struggles with, but the longer you're in the business, the more you figure it out. So if you look at the big icons of one's life balance, right? Each one of them's a tennis ball in the air and, and you need to sort of juggle them successfully. So you got, you know, your family, your your physical fitness, financially, spiritually, charitably, socially. When you work and you're all in, I mean, we're all all in on this business. If you don't take it seriously and you're not all in for your people, then do something else. I mean, if I weren't in real estate, I would want my realtor to, to be all in. But it doesn't mean I have a sort of unabridged access to that person. I think the broker themselves need to—they need to schedule their work appointments, but they also need to schedule their free time and their family time. Put it in your calendar. Don't change it. Um, also, some people do the little never-ending voicemail thing, which I'm not a fan of. But they say, "Hey, I will return calls at between 10 a.m. and 11." And if you call me after 7 p.m. on any day, I'll return your call the next day.
1: I'm not a big um, fan and, of those either, Joe. <laughs>
2: and, and, uh, unless it's like an emergency and you're in the middle of a offer, multi-offer situation, you can break those rules. But um, if it's not an emergency, then it's like Pavlov's dogs, right? It's controlled conditioning. If they call you at 1030 at night or text you at 1030 or night, don't answer, don't text back, because regardless, whatever the topic was, the question they had that was burning that they needed to call you, you know, at all hours of the night, it doesn't matter what your answer is. The the true underlying answer is, I called you at 1030 and you answered the phone. Therefore, I can call at 1030 and Mm -hmm. you're going to answer the phone tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So it's just really life balance and, and, you know, if, if April's really struggling with it, there's a lot of great, uh, life balance books out there that, uh, take a little bit of work. They take a little bit of physical fitness, a little bit of family time, a little bit of just me time and, uh, it'll, it'll put her on the right path. And if she doesn't do it soon, then she will, her head will explode. Uh, so she needs to figure out that balance sooner than later before she burns out and is forced to take time off.
0: <laughs> yes, or, uh, well, yeah, or finds a bar and stays there, you know, many <laughs> nights after work. Uh, you know, I don't know. It, this is an interesting question, because I, I personally believe there's there's seasons in life, and, and there's seasons in this business, too, right? Like, Steve, you're talking about when you first got started, you were kind of doing everything, and that was probably the hardest you work, but it probably also felt that way too. Cause you were struggling to get track or tr- not struggling, but trying yeah. to get traction yeah. so desperately. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so we put a lot of stress and pressure on ourselves to get that traction. Like, I don't know what stress is worse. Right. I've always gone back and forth, like the stress of having and doing too much or having not enough business. Not right? enough. Like, not enough.
1: I know. Yeah. I know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so know like, what it's worth. Right, worth. Well, I think I, anyone that has been in that position will agree. Yeah.
0: But they're both stresses you have to manage and deal with. Right. And so, yeah you know, I think uh, she's on the front edge of like, not, you know, trying to get more, right, more clients, bigger client base, um, you know, more income, more deals. That's the kind of the stress that I'm feeling. And that's why she's working so hard. And she's answering her phone all the time. But I also think there's seasons in life. And, you know, I've often had challenges with work life balance. But, you know, I like Joe said, I do pencil in, you know, time during the week for, myself right to just kind of unplug from this world and just entrepreneurship in general which I think is good because then in a healthy way not just going to the bar but like going and I you know I got bowling league and I go play hoops a few nights a week and things like that that just are healthy alternatives to work that allow you to kind of hit the reset button and which is good but you know I used to pick up the phone and or text. back. I guess texting wasn't a thing back in 2003. Was
1: it Steve? When we started, Did it was text? just coming along. I yeah. Think. Maybe not without an like extra charge or something. 2004 was really big. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was right there. Yeah. But I
0: probably would have, Text back. I mean, I do remember like uh, when I first started uh, on the loan side, like I had a client call on a Sunday. And I remember my first, it was like the first Sunday call. And I was like, God, who calls on a Sunday? But then like a year later, you know, my outlook was like, well, it's Sunday. They got a question or they're trying to get pre approved. I'm answering the phone. Right. And mm-hmm. I'm just doing it. So I don't know. I think that uh, in the beginning, when you're trying to build your career, those lines are a little more blurred than as you get farther along and you know you get more established and you know quite honestly people respect somebody who's a little more established a little more and they're not going to push the boundaries as much Mm -hmm. or if you push back they're going to respect it a little more so sometimes you just got to eat it a little bit on the front end and just kind of uh you know those lines get a little blurred, and you kind of you know you don't have as much personal time but on the other side of the hump you know it's it's a better place to be so I think she will get there but Work well, she, I think family. she's
1: there. I think she's a, a semi-established agent, but maybe she's making that transition that you're talking about. Maybe she's at that hump, if you will. And um, by the way, you know who agreed with you exactly, Tucker? And I love everything you're saying. Was Brian Belairs, and he usually has really good thoughts on masters. He's he's a very active member. Um, he said something very similar to that, <clears throat> where and you know when you're new in the business, y- you you don't have experience, you don't have track record you don't have those credentials but what you do you should have hopefully to offset that is what you just said tucker you should have that grit that time that energy that effort but as you get more established and you your your reputation's better and people are coming to you referred you 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 should have the ability if you want to continue that path so be it but but you you should have a little bit more ability to push back and they're still going to wait for you and not go find the next person right and I think that's what you're saying and I agree totally. Um let's move on to the next one. <clears throat> Jesse Dow January 16th. Do you feel buyers have a buyer the buyer has more protection than the seller? Let's say it's day 29 of 30 in the transaction and the buyer can't close on their loan. Their financing contingency protects them and they get their earnest money back. The seller has to go back on the market and loses all of their momentum. And when they go back on, it looks like they've been on the market for 30 plus days or so. Is there any way to add a layer of protection in for sellers getting rid of the lending contingency? For instance, maybe writing an addendum that says if a buyer fails to close on their lo- loan, they forfeit X. I have to say one funny thing about this. <clears throat> when we emailed back and forth amongst ourselves about this show, I, in the subject line, purposefully, by the way, Joe, purposefully, had <laughs> the letters B-O-M. For best of masters, right? In the line, and Joe replied. And he goes, "Oh my God, you freak me out whenever I get that. I'm glancing through my the, yeah. my email, my emails, and I see BOM in the subject line. Um, that means he, back,
2: that means back on market to me.
1: Back yeah. on market, which is which is a, a three letter w- nasty word in uh, real estate. Um, so, uh, Joe, talk to us about this one. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, <clears throat> so I think there's a lot of it that can be controlled if i have a listing and uh someone brings a buyer and it's like a 30-day close there's there's really a, a two responsibilities the buyer can back out a million different ways in the first couple of weeks due to disclosures inspection period and the place has to appraise if it's going through a bank so it's It's heavily weighted where the buyer can bounce at any time in the beginning. But as you go through these channels, it starts evening out a little bit where at this point, if the person doesn't perform, the seller may have a play on their earnest money. And I think if it's a quick close, like a 30-day close, um, I think it's pretty even. At the time an offer is made and accepted, they just kind of say, hey, I like this house. I'm willing to offer this. The seller is willing to accept it. Then they have an inspection to find out what's known or not known to both parties. And then they have to deal with it. And the seller has every right to say, look, I'm not going to credit you that amount or I'm not going to fix this stuff. And the buyer has every right to walk if they so choose. Um As far as the buyer not financing, that's the age old, I changed my mind, there's another house I like better, I want to buy it, but I really, really want my earnest money back. So the last-ditch attempt after it appraises, after your inspection period's closed, after you signed your disclosures is, well, the buyer didn't qualify. Well, if the listing agent is worth their fee, They probably spoke to the lender. They probably have an autographed pre-approval letter from that lender. And if the person doesn't qualify, it also says that the buyer can't do anything to put themselves in harm's way so they don't qualify. Like, don't go out and buy a truck. Don't quit your job. Don't purposely do something so you won't qualify. Um, I think that's fightable. In small claims court, or if it's over ten grand, uh, you know, in real court, I think you can fight it. And the seller is good for all of it, or, or at the very least, probably splitting it. When a lot of people settle, that's what they get. Where it gets hinky is if someone says, "Hey, we have a house that's supposed to close in sixty days, so we want to buy your house, but we're going to do this extended closing." I will have a second earnest money deposit and I will make earnest money non-refundable after a clear appraisal and after the inspection period's done because I want to keep the buyers honest because you're basically taking your home off the market for them and their wacky timeline. So in Jesse's post, it is a little off balance, but for me, it's all to how long this closing stretches out, and if it really stretches out a lot, I'm going to make them pay. You got to pay to play. So um, I, I think you can account for making it fair by some tweaking.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good breakdown.
1: Yeah, I mean, think, Steve? I mean, I'm 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 right there with you. It it's it's kind of it's it's the acceptable norm that. I I just feel, I've had these, I've had over the years, these sellers that are, that get really hyper-focused on this. Usually they're pretty analytical people and they're like, they're, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to psychoanalyze this whole scenario and come, and, and they're viewing everything from a pessimistic, like worst case scenario. And, and I, a couple times I've just said, look, you gotta just trust the process. If this doesn't work, if you don't have some trust in the process, meaning these people need a house, you need to sell. They came to your house. They got emotionally attached to your house. They want your house. Could they lose their job? Sure. Could they be stupid and you know, not make their car payment? Sure. But, but we have to going marching down this path we're, we have to trust that they they have good representation and they're doing things th- the right way. You know, one out of a hundred might have a, a nasty ending, but we'll have ninety nine out of a hundred nasty endings if we try to put teeth in this and try to overcompensate for this and try to make them release their earnest money. We'll 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 go the other way and we'll cause a problem with every every buyer versus that one you know problematic buyer out of a hundred. Um, I think I've even used the analogy sometimes in these conversations with my sellers. I'm saying, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I think in one case they were, and I was kind of having some fun with them and we were, we were, I was trying to make a light conversation. I'm like, I said, you know, it's probably a lot like when you guys first started dating. I mean, there's a, there's a trust component to, to a relationship like that. Could somebody go out there and go, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, screw over every, every seller and make offers and, and, and screw up the the process and not, it's not going to cost me a dime. Sure. But, but what's really in it for them. And and the same is true, you know, in a, uh, in a romantic relationship of dating, you have to have some trust in the process that, that they, they, they really don't have bad intentions in that regards. They're, they're in it for something just like you are. Um, Tucker, you got anything to add to that one? I mean, I, I, my worry is, never so much the
0: buyer um as it is the uh, service provider surrounding the buyer (laughs) so like as a seller you know if you get a um let's say a loan officer that maybe uh bites off more than they can chew and they kind of string it along longer than they should or they try and you know prevent you from knowing that there might be a condition or two on that approval that is kind of challenging to get cleared but nobody ever says anything till the last minute that's always one of my worst fears, right? Because it does happen occasionally. Not every loan officer by any means. But the other is... um appraisal issues. Right. And I know that you can, you know, have people waive the appraisal contingency and things like that. But, um, you know, we've had a number of times where we've had a really shitty appraisal come in and, you know, not all appraisers are created equal. Let's just be honest about that. And, um, you know, I know a bunch, some are good, some don't know their, you know, what from their, you know, what, when it comes to actually valuing real estate, other than just, you know, taking a square footage and assigning a, a dollars per square foot to it they leave out the marketability aspect to it and there is a big x factor there a lot of times that you have to factor in but they're not great at so my biggest fear is okay one of those things happens right and you as a seller then are still in the same position uh, that this guy's talking about which is you've been on market close to 30 days and now you have an unclosable transaction or a transaction that if you close you have to take a big haircut as a seller which one do you do right you're at a, a big disadvantage I i do believe as a seller at that point because you have to decide what's more important money or time, depending on your situation. And so that's, that's my biggest, I guess, hang up when I go to accept offers is what's the likelihood of us getting into that situation? Because we've, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but, you know, I would say probably twice a year, we run into a situation where either financing, you know, goes screwy, or we get appraisal issues that come in in that 25 to 30 day range of, you know, being pending. So, you know, it's just kind of part of the game though, I guess. Um, but, That's always a concern. But as you said, Steve, I don't think you can like, there's nothing you can really do other than, you know, if you're going to get in a relationship, you have to kind of put yourself out there. If you're going to sell a house, you have to kind of put yourself out there, right? And so you just kind of have to hope that it doesn't happen every time and it doesn't. But I would say as a seller, yeah, if shit hits the fan on day 28 you're the one that's probably losing the most because you now have to pick the pieces back up with a BOM and uh, try and get as close to that contract price as you can, which sometimes can be difficult um, just the way the market perceives it. So risk of doing business, I guess.
1: Yeah. And, and I guess to put it, sh- to summarize what I was trying to say, and I think you, you you touched on it very well too, Tucker, the paranoia of this process can cause you far more damage than than the the one-off scenarios uh, that could happen in the process. Right. Um, okay. Let's move on to the next one. Um, Rob Levy. Good old Rob. Um, January 10th. I wonder at what time our Oregon leaders, this one could get controversial. I wonder at what time our Oregon leaders r- will realize that our excessive taxes are pushing people out. We have been in a free fall over the last few years, according to the study Florida is now number one, and Washington jumped from twenty-nine to four. We're in, we are we we at a, or near the top of the list. So he sent a list of um, states, and it's it's U-Haul. It's who's moving to what states, which are growing, which have the most people influx, which have the most outpouring. Um, Oregon was number twenty-nine on the list, and it wasn't that long ago we were number one on the list. Um, Florida was number one. Arizona is number two. I have read other. Articles about this on other business sites and other um, business uh, blogs that there is a migration of sorts to to states that are more favorable with taxes. Um, I, we can lump the two we have, guys. We have another one this week talking about the new tax um, where if you make over a million dollars in sales, you um, pay. On, Actually, on the top, not dedicated. on your profits, but on actual sales, you have an, a top line tax of, I think it's like half a percent or something like that. Right, Tucker? So, I think it's like 0.67%, but it's anything over 750,000 in sales from what I read. So. I think it's over a million, but you have to register when you hit 750. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, you get yeah. 250 for free. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you get close to a million, they make you register or do something so that when you hit a million, they're paying close attention to you. Um And, uh, so which is a new tax and it's a tax on businesses, but it's going to affect consumers. I read another article about that one recently that says, basically it's a way for Oregon to have snuck in a sales tax because across the board, everybody, I mean, think of your average restaurant, right? The the, most of them, they sell over a million dollars in food per year. Tucker, you I, they view your each of your houses. I mean, gosh, <laughs> you hit over a million with one sale, right? Yeah, and I get,
0: I get uh, as you would say, s- taken pretty good on the, all builders <laughs> do. Um, because well, they and your
1: service providers are all passing that along to you too, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, they are. And it, and you're right. It is. It does become a sales tax because as you accumulate 0.67 of a percent or whatever it ends up being on multiple sales from multiple providers to one end product that then goes to the consumer. They're, you know, quantifying this at somewhere, you know, maybe around 5% increase in in general product price, which ultimately becomes a sales tax, right? But as you and I both know, sales tax is not a popular voting item. So, you know, this one kind of slipped past the goalie, I guess. Um, But it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I don't know. There was a couple of uh, rather spiteful comments about the U-Haul article, I think, uh, when I read it originally. Um, people were doubting the validity of the article and whatnot, but you said that you've actually read multiple in regards to this being at least
1: specific to Oregon. Some of the ones I read in CNBC, they just, they were, they were talking about how a lot of people are moving to Florida. And I'm hearing a lot of people that talk about Arizona in the same way, how they just are more favorable with their state taxes. And then here we're seeing Oregon with some of these additions that they're making, by the way, when, usually when you get a sales tax, they take away or reduce your income tax. Well, that didn't happen. So this is kind of just a, a, a another layer on top. Um, I'll be honest with you guys. I've heard more and more grumbling from longtime Oregonians than I remember hearing in the past. I mean, it wasn't but a couple years ago, Tucker, you and I were on the show. And I think we had Randy Sebastian on here. And he was like, yeah, when I was a kid, everybody wanted to move to Honolulu and California now, Portland and Oregon is the place to be. Well, I I do sense a little, I do sense a little reversal of that in that I'm hearing more and more natives kind of grumble. And maybe it's not just these taxes. Maybe it's some of the other stuff you're seeing. By the way, um, the governor is really set on that cap and trade bill. She there was some couple other articles about that where she really wants to do something with that. And there's been. Um, you know just a lot of other things. So I think it's a uh, it's a valid concern. I don't think we're having a mass migration out of the state yet, but you don't want that and you don't and and it is good for us in real estate. Make no mistake. People moving here is a very good thing. I know there's a lot of people in other industries that or or that have a lot of other jobs that they might hate the Californians moving here. But there is no downside to us real estate people, builders, realtors, having people move here and and stay here. It's good It's good for business. Joe, you got any thoughts on this one?
2: Uh, yeah. Thin, it's Thin, thin red you
1: know, line,
0: Joe. Thin red line.
2: <laughs> yeah, thin red line. So um, in short, I think we have a lot of wrong people in office right now. I think our tax dollars are used for... Uh, a lot of the wrong things I'd like to wipe it clean and start over um, and I and you can't fix everything but by, by raising taxes which is their only means of uh, generating capital um, and so yeah I'm as pissed as anybody else uh, you know it might give people more alternatives maybe they go to Washington or maybe they go somewhere other than here our traffic is pretty much bad enough but you know to move to florida just simply because of taxes like once the last time you guys had a hurricane wipe out your house <laughs> any time <laughs> in recent history
1: um i don't think th- west coast people moved to florida i think they moved to um arizona maybe arizona yeah
2: yeah it's like look we don't have bugs as big as your hand there's no like hurricanes and and all of the things that people have elsewhere. Um, it really is a pretty terrific place. Four distinct seasons. Um, I could use a little bit more sun than we get, and a little less traffic. Uh, taxes alone wouldn't be enough to make me move somewhere less desirable, but I do think I agree with Rob. Uh, it affects everything, and they do need to get a handle on it.
0: That's all I got. I'll will say this: uh, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an irritation because they try they try to run Steve at the um, sales tax uh, a couple of years ago uh, during election season, if I do remember, and it uh, it did not win over the hearts of, uh, Oregonians. So it was repackaged as a revenue tax and somehow it made it through, which is, I wonder if we can find another, uh, one of our lobbyists down there to jump on and f- tell us how exactly that's made it through the uh, political gauntlet. But that aside, I think our biggest, um, there was another link here in the comments about how Portland public schools are going to ask for more money in the 2020, um, school bond measure here and uh, for ongoing construction costs. But I think our biggest threat as people in real estate right now is the fact that school bonds never go away. They just re-up them and they keep adding to them. And uh, that's one that directly affects the affordability of housing. And I feel like, you know, somebody's got to kind of slap the hand that keeps reaching in the cookie jar because they think that's a never ending pot of money that they can just keep going to uh, taxpayers and saying, we're going to up your millage rate for this and up your millage rate for that. And it just is getting, it's getting a little crazy, especially now that, um, you know, we don't have the tax deductibility of our property taxes. Um, It just that's the one that scares me the most. And it's, you know, property taxes for everybody have been creeping up a lot, but you know, Lake Oswego, they went up year last year, they went up 15% mm-hmm. year over year with the school bond that went in place. And now with uh, Portland public schools poised to ask for another one on the heels of the largest one that they ever asked for, that scares me a little bit because that says that the train is off the tracks and uh, the money is not uh, going as far as they pitched that it would. And had they pitched it correctly to begin with, they probably wouldn't have got any of it. So that's the one that's got me most concerned. What's done now is done, uh, unfortunately, and we'll see how it all shakes out. But hopefully everybody kind of keeps their eye open for the, um, you know, all the bond measures that are coming up and really think hard about whether or not we need to keep granting money to them
1: yeah and and joe i i agree with you i mean don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not i'm not um hating on or you know i'm not down on oregon I, this is this is home this is i and i wouldn't move for taxes either but um it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts it feels like you know it's not just taxes it's it's what they're doing with landlords it's what they're doing with rent control it's what they're doing with Plastic bags It's what they're doing with straws. I mean, it's, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, straws are killing me, man. <laughs> killing know, me, yeah. Give me my straws back. <laughs> the, the damn server comes to you, gives you a your drink. You're like, Oh, can I get a straw? And then 20 minutes later you get it. And you're, you've been staring at your drink, slurping on it and getting ice in your teeth. Um, <laughs> that'll make you go to Florida. <laughs> you, you drink whiskey with a straw? <laughs> no, I'm teeth. Margarita. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, um, I'm, it, but you know, it's just, uh, you know, it can be, it's, it's, I, I'm of the opinion that gridlocking government can be a good thing. You know, when, you, when the, the state of Oregon, it feels like has kind of gone really, 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 um, it's a super majority, which I, I usually kind of side with that, that side of things anyway, a little bit, but man, when it's a super majority and everything they want is getting through. Almost in a, in my opinion, a rebellious fashion to the, you know, the 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 national lean of things, it just feels problematic. That's all, and um, I I I worry a little bit about the long term implications of what this is going to do with people. Um, I, there was I was at an event last week, and and somebody said something really smart from the stage. It was it was down in Salem. It was the O R E A. Um, event it was builders it was um, realtors it was mortgage lenders somebody made a comment he said why as Oregonians do we copy California for everything when at the same time all the Californians are leaving California something to that effect right we're copying a state whose people are fleeing them in droves so anyway we don't have sunshine like they do so you know (laughs) yeah about that right okay uh,
0: well, i think we we towed the thin red line and maybe stepped over it a little bit but let's go on to uh we're, we're creeping up on an hour here so let's do one more how about uh, we do the sewer scope uh, topic because that's definitely one that i think we've all experienced
1: do you have that one in front of you tucker i do i can uh, read You're it here so it off.
0: let's see uh this was uh brian bellers right um this may surprise some of you, but I started in this business uh, when there were phone booths, which, uh, Steve, we might have been right on the cusp of that. There might have been phone booths around. When I'm we pretty started. sure
1: they're out there. Yeah,
0: Joe definitely did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For the first 20 years, 20 years uh, I was in the business, there were no such thing as sewer scopes. They weren't done. And not once in my first 20 years did I hear of a sewer line failure. Fast forward to today, every home sale involves sewer scope. And they often fail because of bellies, exclamation, times four. So here's my question. In previous years, was sewage escaping from the sewage pipes and contaminating the soil in mass? Or were we just blissfully unaware of the crap flowing all around us? Or did we find a solution to the grossly exaggerated problem? Your thoughts? Steve, you probably deal with this a fair bit. What do you think? Yeah,
1: um... I do, I do. and and I've had a lot of sewer issues on my listings lately. And you know, yeah, I, I, I agree with Brian. Um, should we do sewer scopes? Yes. Should we call out if there's a major issue and say, Hey, I don't want to take on this issue. It's your house now, so you fix it, and then I'll buy it from you. Absolutely. But what I think has what what I think probably started in that regards as a healthy process has sort of morphed into this expectation of perfection for something that probably doesn't need to be perfect because it's underground it's not being seen anyway you know when if if you look at a house like one of your beautiful houses tucker and and maybe the paint's not perfect or the the crown molding's not perfect or you know something like that's not perfect okay yeah let's let's fix that but i think we're expecting perfection in an area that Probably just doesn't need it. Um, You had an interesting comment. I'd never even thought about it, but and I'll let you go further into it. But here we are. We're perfecting these sewer lines underneath the property. What are they then going into when they hit the streets? What are those sewer systems like? Are they perfect? So I mean, how does that how does that make sense to me? That's my thoughts. What do you got? It doesn't. uh, I mean, the city sewer mains are a lot of
0: them are extremely backed up. Um, but I think it's just more of a, well, it's not on my property, so it's not my problem, even though it's the same system that we all, you know, pump into. I mean, we had a, um, we had a house that we did in lads edition, probably, I don't know, seven years ago. And right before we were at closing to sell it, I got a call that the basement was flooded and it was a, it was a really old house. There wasn't a backflow valve on it and shit water had come up from the sewer that backed up not at fault of our line but the actual city system and uh, it filled up the whole basement with uh you know nasty stinky sewage water and uh, so we had to rip out the entire basement redo it put a backflow valve in all that stuff but point is is that you know we negotiate so hard to have like you said a perfect sewer line like literally the business has become like oh my god There's a slight offset in a joint in one of the connections on a sewer line, you know, that runs from the house to the main. Uh, We got to replace the whole line. I got a bid for 8,500 bucks. We want a credit or, you know, you guys need to fix it. And, you know, the house has been properly flowing sewage or at least satisfactorily flowing sewage from house to main for 60 years without problem but now all of a sudden you know mr sewer inspector says there's an offset in one of the joints and now we got to dig up the whole damn yard
1: and fix it because or the driveway so, even worse, yeah, right? or the
0: driveway right so yeah. i do believe that uh, the hysteria has gotten to an all-time high and You know, I think that I blame agents as much as anybody because it's just become kind of the norm or it's become a a negotiation piece that really they're negotiating not for a better price but for a perfect line, which, you know, if you're negotiating for a better price, you know, that's real estate and that's the game. But to negotiate for a perfect line because that's the new normal, it seems a little crazy in a lot of cases. But, you know, and people – definitely hold us to that standard because we sell new houses so if there's anything wrong with the line they're like it needs to be perfect you know so we feel it as much as anybody there's no question and and i do feel like it's a joke most of the time i really do i mean the amount of conversations i've had where people blow way out of proportion the fact there's a slight offset in the joint or the line's carrying a quarter inch of water for a two foot section or something ridiculous like I can't even tell you how many times I've had those conversations. And a lot of times agents don't even really understand what they're saying. They're just regurgitating what a overzealous sewer inspector said, and they're trying to make it sound like I should care. Um, and so it it's annoying. I'll agree with Brian on this one. It's gotten a little ridiculous, but I don't know, Joe, what, what do you feel about this? Well,
2: so to, to answer his question, I mean, because we never tested for it before doesn't mean that there were existing problems then it's kind of like, you know, putting a sticker over your check engine light that is always on in your
0: car. I mean, (laughs)
2: ignoring it doesn't make it... uh, Good point,
0: good point, point. yeah.
2: Uh, But with all of these tests and and scares, we've seen them all. I mean, you got radon, you have undecommissioned oil tanks, septic systems, you got asbestos, black mold, LP siding, EFIS. There's a new scare that comes out Every year or two, and some of them are valid and some of them aren't. But the fact is, there's a lot of money in scaring people. Like, remember Y2K? (laughs) They were selling these blue barrels, 60-gallon barrels that you could buy for like 50 bucks and you could fill it for water because... Once the clocks change and it's and it's all of a sudden 2000, none of the computers would work. So they're selling batteries and barrels and
1: radios that you can. That when you got your concealed carry permit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
2: they sold riot insurance at Y2K because they thought there'd be riots. So you can get riot insurance. Um, anyway. Uh, all I remember growing up as a kid that everybody's lawn was really green and lush. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I really don't want that stuff flowing around. Um, I think some of the biggest offenders can be fixed, but to really, there's a tiny little belly where there's some water or there's like a little, a couple roots through there. I don't think you need to worry about that. Um, but, the sewer scope people and the selling agent worry about the little tiny things as if the entire line is shot. And I don't think, uh, I I think based on the inspection report, you should deal with it accordingly versus, Hey, there's roots coming through. So there's a breach in the sewer line. Therefore it's shot and we want 5,500 bucks for a new sewer line. Um, But yeah, those those leaked back in the day, just like they leak today. We just didn't know about it. So, and and honestly, the the buyers, you go to the bathroom, flush the toilet, it goes away, right? It's you don't even think about it. I think most of the reason why buyers have sewer line tests is because let's say they live there for four years, then when they sell, if those buyers have a sewer scope on them. They just took on all the liability of that seller that lived there for 25 years and drove trucks over where the sewer line was and had a big oak there. You're taking on all that liability by not having it scoped. So really, they want to have it scoped just to make sure they're on ground zero when they buy it and not buy something with a shot line that they're going to have
1: to pay for when they sell. So... Uh, I, I, I think we're we're in agreement with you on that, Joe. We, I I think we're just re- acknowledging that sometimes what's called a quote unquote shot line isn't really shot. It's got a tiny belly and it's still very operational. It just doesn't look pretty to the camera that will never be visible to anybody. Right. Right. And those ones, I, I think there's a hysteria around that where people are demanding perfection, where it's just not absolutely needed. Yeah, so, that radon. I tell you what, my theory
0: is they cook those
1: boxes, but I'll keep that for another show. Split so. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that one with a good one. Ah, huh? boom. So all right, <laughs> radon wasn't around before either. There was a post in Masters recently about radon. Um, somebody asked when they we started doing it. Do you remember what the date, what they, what the I, consensus was? I think it was
2: like like six years ago or so.
1: It was a little bit longer than that. Here it was. I think it's all... Uh, a lot of agents... I hear them... Uh, do, 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 do. It was Sarah O'Reilly. Can anyone tell me what year became the norm to test radon? There was 26 comments. Somebody must have known. Um, I was house flipping in 05, 06, and radon tests were rare. I bought a house in 08, and it wasn't being done. Seems We started to be the-
0: pre-piping for radon systems in our new construction about... 2012, so um, yeah, that's when the city started to say that you needed to pre-pipe them. So.
1: so, it's I think the consensus is around ten 2010 maybe. Yeah, mm. somewhere in there. Yeah, I remember early in our career, I never I never heard about it. I never, when I was a lender, I never heard. Oh, we you know we've got a radon issue working through. Yeah. All right. Well, what's the new one? What's the next one going to be? Let's predict it. You know
0: what I heard? I heard there was some recall on uh, comp shingles that people were scared to death of something in just your traditional comp roofing, and they had to give a credit for a whole new roof because of it. So I I don't know Uh what that one is. It's like the LP of comp shingles. So uh, I'll have to Google it later, but who knows, man? Who knows? Maybe... uh, I don't know we'll come up with something for next week's show see if yeah it takes-
1: no that'd be interesting to try to predict what the next big thing that everyone's going to start testing for galvanized pipe in your house it's crazy <laughs> right. yeah yeah you
0: know, so
1: yeah uh, making people go mad
0: drinking that galvanized <laughs> water so yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right well we made it through a bunch of different stuff we talked about uh cougars concealed carry shit pipes and uh everything in between so joe as always thanks for uh joining us for what's always an eventful show when we have you
1: oh yeah it's fun thank you (laughs) yeah thank you joe for joining us great great show we'll get you on again soon we'll uh we'll come up with some other future guests we need to get kurt back on tucker I'll, reach I'll see out, if girl. I can
0: uh, pencil in about six hours uh, for him to be on. Um, <laughs> whatever, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But uh, yeah, we'll have we got some good guests lined up, so we'll bring them on. But uh, thanks everybody for listening. This is our first show of 2020. We'll be back uh, probably in a couple of weeks. So we'll see you guys then.